Hey, rockers. Welcome to the Talk Louder podcast, another episode where we ask you, as always, to please hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel. And uh, you can also look for us on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, and we got a great show for you today. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We were talking about possibly my favorite band of all time. That band is Aerosmith. Um, I say that with the uh, caveat, possibly, because depending on which day you ask me, my favorite band is either Aerosmith or the Ramones. Uh, today we're going with Aerosmith, and uh, Jason and I have a lot of uh, opinions and memories and stories to tell about the bad boys from Boston. And we'll get into all that in just a minute. But first, Jason, what's going on with you? Oh, some more home improvement. And um, this is kind of interesting. And and basically, like a, a span of about 10 days, I've been commissioned to cut vocals on not one but two Van Halen songs. Ah, do tell. Very interesting. Uh, there's some guys here in Austin who have commissioned me to cut vocals on uh, Right Now, the Van Hagar. Oh, uh, wow. And I know that was kind of, and uh, let me just talk about this for a second. Dude, Sammy's badass. Oh, because, yeah. Because I'm having a really hard time <laughs> cutting this vocal and getting it to where it's even close to like letting it like okay that's i hate saying good enough you know me i like a tight ship i don't you know me well enough yeah. to know that you know it's like i'm this close to calling the guys and going man this is too hard for me you know but uh <laughs> it's a it's a great challenge vocally so yeah. i'm just give it hell and uh, i'm sure everyone will smile and uh and then the other one is some guys out of san antonio that i know and it's a father-son uh, duo that uh, I've done shows that Broken Teeth has done shows with actually in the past and, and uh, Sad Wings and Big Balls. And anyway, um, they're doing, uh, they're having me do uh, Love in a Simple Rhyme. Oh, in a From sim- Women and Children in a Simple Rhyme. Yeah, from uh, Yours in a Simple Rhyme. Yeah, from uh, Women and uh, no, yeah, women and children first. First, yeah. yep, yep, yep. And that, the challenge of that, it's kind of talk-sing. Yeah. Right? Well, uh, back in the past, I was treated so coldly. You know, this is kind of this whole game show host kind of thing going on with all the <laughs> snippets of uh, pterodactyl screams and all that, which... You know, I feel more suited vocally to do that than I am the Sammy stuff because Sammy is, he's got his own, he's his own man. He's doing his own thing. I don't know of any, I mean, he's like a redneck Robert Plant or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's it's really weird. Man, you are on with the descriptions today. First, David Lee Roth is a game show host. I've never heard it put that way, but I couldn't agree more. That's perfect. And now the satanic. He, yeah, David Lee Roth is the satanic game show host. <laughs> and, uh, you know, evil, complete evil genius package uh, yeah. because no one was doing anything like that. I mean, all the crooner type things that he has done that everybody knows him for. Yeah, but, you know, he's uh, he's like Louis Prima, jazzy, speak vocal, you know, you know, yeah. kind of guy. 
with all the screamy, weird, you know, pterodactyls. And uh, and Sammy is like this kind of classic rock yeller kind of a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, He's a great singer. He's great. Yeah. Like, really good. But I think that he gets a bad rep for just being a little high on Velveeta, you know, the red rocker kind of thing. And, and then, you know, Oh, he, you know, Van Halen went and got their drinking buddy to replace Roth. And of course they did. Yeah. That's that's what they want. They want a drinking (laughs) buddy. Right. Yeah. So so I think that, you know, Sammy was actually a really good, we, we need to do a Van Halen show. What about you, Dave? Um, well, I'm about, uh, I just got my second dose of COVID vaccine about two hours ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm hoping that that doesn't leave me feeling like crap the rest of the weekend, because I've heard that some people breeze right through it. No problem. And some people feel like they have the flu for five days. So, uh, I've got my fingers crossed, but I do know that I'm looking forward to having some of my freedom back as far as, uh, finally visiting my parents for the first time in over a year and uh, catching up with some friends that I haven't seen in person since, you know, this all started a year ago. So uh, we'll see how that, how that works out, but uh, yeah. only two hours into it and so far so good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But uh, I don't want to mess around, man. I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get right into today's topic because I'm stoked about talking about Aerosmith. <laughs> So today's topic, Aerosmith, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, one of the greatest, arguably the greatest American rock and roll band. Um, I did a little research, and if you can trust Wikipedia, and I'm not saying you should, but uh, Wikipedia says Aerosmith has sold 150 million albums worldwide, and that makes them the most successful American rock band of all time, which I find hard to argue, but that also means that that puts them above a Van Halen, a Metallica, and uh, that's pretty impressive. And I don't want to dwell on it, but uh, it just gives you some sense of the stature of the band that we're talking about here. So what do you remember about the first time you discovered Aerosmith? Well, first off, Wikipedia, fact or fiction. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. That kind of turns it into a whole other story. Um, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be a little frank here and say, I don't give a shit how many records Aerosmith has sold. Yeah. And frankly, again, I don't think Aerosmith should worry about how many fucking records they've sold. (laughs) But I think that it's an interesting sort of like a circus point, right? Yeah. Um, they have lived and died and returned from the dead. So if they're selling records uh, to a new audience because they've uh, written some uh, very, I'll I'll use fun words, very handy uh, pop songs, right? Sure. Uh, They've written some convenient songs, uh, movie soundtrack, type things um you know they they've kind of uh, done it all now when i think aerosmith i i kind of have a cutoff point 
Um, but I also want to sort of like look over the fence and say, man, there's some, there's some great shit on pump. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's some great, there's some great songwriting, even though they collaborated a lot, but you know what? They collaborated on the, with people on the first four albums, which is what I most importantly sort of like roll around in the grass with yeah. is the first four albums. Yeah. Um, I think rocks and toys in the attic. I, I want to like, uh, tattoo them on my soul <laughs> because though they just like, like everything about them, the tone of the record, uh, you know, it, it's like when I'm a kid in the seventies listening to those records more so than, you know, the first couple of records, uh, you know, draw the line, get your wings, um, first album right but but later on the first five records you could say right um I, i'd say toys and rocks oh my god yeah. it's like it's like the first like uh you know four or five kiss albums you know yeah but but, but to, if i had to pick some it would probably be rocks and toys because everything about the smell of those records yeah uh, uh, worries me that i'm gonna have a heart attack with a smile on my face. Yeah. yeah. This is so nasty and so heavy and so dark and so weird and so dancey and funky all at the same time. Yeah. I uh I remember the first album I got was Toys in the Attic. I actually bought it on cassette tape and I remember um I was you know, I was a kid. I was starting to get into rock and roll. I was already a diehard Kiss fan. I was starting to expand my horizons a little bit. And I remember, of course, hearing Dream On and Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way on the radio. And I knew that the older kids on the school bus were digging Aerosmith. So I thought I'd better look into it, right? So I got Toys in the Attic on cassette. And, uh, I loved it. It didn't blow me away like the first time I heard Kiss. Aerosmith is one of those bands I kind of grew along with and then sort of learned to really appreciate the older I got. And uh, I didn't dislike them. They just didn't grab me right away. And I think it's maybe because at that time in my life, especially after coming off of Kiss, I'm looking for, you know, over-the-top, gigantic, bombastic. And Aerosmith was a little more... They were flamboyant, but they were a little more street and gritty and down and dirty and all the things that I I grew to appreciate the older I got. And uh, I remember that was my starting point was a Toys in the Attic cassette. And, uh, you know, and looking back, they just sort of they totally embody everything I personally love about rock and roll. They got an outstanding front man. Uh, the songs, especially the early part of their career, were real gritty and dirty, a lot of swagger, a lot of boogie. Um, they had an image. Uh, they looked like a gang. They were they were dangerous. They were bad boys. You know, it was everything. And uh, so Toys in the Attic was my starting point. And then I went backwards and forwards and uh, loved everything I heard. Um, so they they are now probably my favorite band of all time, you know, especially that early part of their career. The first record was really sort of an anomaly because if you listen to it, Steven Tyler's voice hasn't really turned into the voice that we all have 
come to know. He was sort of trying to imitate some of his blues influences and his uh, uh, James Brown and Motown type influences. And uh, Dream On is really the only song on that first record where he sounds like the Steven Tyler that uh, we all became familiar with. And then after that first record, I think he got comfortable with his own voice. And I mean, for my money, he's the best voice in rock and roll. I just I love everything about his voice. And then going into the later part of their career, uh, there are some hits and some misses. But I will say anything that Steven Tyler is singing, I'm going to pay attention to it at least a couple times because of that voice. Where would you rate Tyler as a singer being a singer yourself? I. I think that there's something about his voice a lot of people don't realize. You know, he he obviously uh, worked on developing his style early on, but, uh, you know, half the time you could say he sounds like he just woke up. <laughs> and the other, because of the grit and this yeah. screechy kind of thing, and he doesn't really have a vibrato. Uh He's got this cackle, like a. It's almost like a. Like when you're on a ro- on a motorboat and you you run across someone's wake, someone who cries, you know, you know, it's like a jackhammer, kind of a. And that's not really a proper vibrato. Um, you know, like Bruce Dickinson or Dio or uh, you know a real, kind. Of, I was gonna say a real singer, but. That's not what I mean when I say real singer. I love Steven Tyler. I rip him off every chance I get. Uh, I think that there is um, a lot of things that people don't realize about Steven Tyler. His wardrobe, his tone, his range, his even his stage presence other than the spins spins and the and the and the but you know the lean and the you know uh there there's a lot of comparisons to that people don't don't check them to Janis Joplin Janis Joplin with the bell bottoms and the stripes and the sequins and the boas and the makeup and the floppy hats and the beads and the hand on the hip and the whole thing uh I don't think Janis uh you know had a, a dancing partner that was just a microphone stand with with uh, you know scarves all over it, but she had scarves on everything else. <laughs> she had a scarf around her head. Oh, that's Steven Tyler. She had a scarf around everything. Else, you know, yeah. um, so there. You know, there's a lot when you think about Janis Joplin for a second, and then think about Steven Tyler. There's not a whole lot of difference in tonality, in um, range. And sometimes even in lyrics, maybe, maybe you know, maybe Janice is a little bit more hippie, but they're they're both hippie. Anyway, uh, Tyler um, is a madman. I think that he, uh, you know, he's kind of like a David Lee Roth in a in a big way, where no one really does that. And, you know, Roth earlier in our intro there, I was comparing Roth to, you know, just the the crooners, you know, the old like jazz guys and stuff. And uh, 
but he has his own, he's at, he's sprinkling heavy metal on top of it or something, you know? Yeah. And Tyler has influenced me as a, as when I sing heavy metal stylings or just sleazy rock and roll. Yeah. It, I kind of borrow from Tyler and it fits in both. I mean, maybe there's a little bit more Halford in that, but you know, there's even comparisons in, in, in what Halford does and, and Tyler does. But now let's talk about Tyler's a vocal attack His vocal attack is, you know, it's very interesting, uh, his technique, because I feel like he doesn't sing a whole lot louder than I'm talking right now. Same with the Brian Johnson, right? Yeah. Because, uh, it, it, you know, it sounds like it's a scream. Yeah. It's not a scream. It's not a scream. It's a controlled amount of air flowing over your vocal cords. And besides, everybody knows it's kind of, you know, in layman terms, if you scream, you tear your voice up. You lose your voice. Here's the thing. If you go to your favorite concert every night, you know how you go to your concert and you scream all the words and you stand on the seat and you go nuts and you're, you're sore and you can't even talk at school the next day? Or what at work? Uh, what what's wrong with your voice, dude? Oh, I went saw Aerosmith last night. I screamed. Oh man, they were awesome. It's like, dude, you need to shut up. You know, get your <laughs> voice back. What if you went? What if you went and saw your favorite band play every night and sang every? That's like work. That's like lifting weights. Yeah, yeah. You would callous your voice. Okay, so you would also learn not to scream. You can control all of that. So screaming is an emotional response. Yeah. It's not singing. They're singing and they're screaming. So singing to where it sounds like, you know, evil incarnate gargling of razor blades or whatever. It's controlled, right? They're a singers are able to do that without wrecking their voice. Yeah. And he's been doing it for a very long time. So whatever he's doing, he's got it under control and he's got it reined in. And, uh, you mentioned the uh, Janis Joplin comparison, and Tyler himself has said he totally ripped off uh, Janis Joplin, and maybe a lot of people wouldn't uh, wouldn't wouldn't connect those dots, but I definitely see it um, in vocal style and obviously the wardrobe, but uh, vocal style more than anything. Um, and you know, I think you know Aerosmith. You know, Van Halen gets a lot of credit or blame, whatever your preference is, for sort of kickstarting the whole hair metal scene. Um, but I would argue that Aerosmith is kind of, you know, came I mean, Van Halen was covering Aerosmith songs when they were a bar band. So you've got, I think Aerosmith was kind of the first American band that came along that had this really out there front man who was just all over the stage, high energy. Um, the band, you know, just had this look and this energy on stage. And, you know, they were no strangers about, you know, singing about partying and having a good time and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I think that they're sort of the kings of the whole sleaze rock thing, if you think about it. And then you go back to the lyrics, and that just adds to it as well, you know. Um, you, you said, uh, you mentioned Toys in the Attic and Rocks, and those two albums came out right in the middle of their 70s, uh, their 70s era. And those, I would argue, those two albums right there could bookend every cool sleaze metal band or sleaze rock band that ever came out. You could fit them right between those two albums. Yeah, they were writing Boogie Woogie like ZZ Top and Fog Hat and, 
and uh, you know whoever else. But they also had, I mean, like Sweet Emotion is like this super dark. Uh, the riffs in it are, I mean, it, you know, the the chorus is this super candy harmony thing. Yeah. That's just over a, a an, you know, a riff and A minor kind of thing, right? And uh, I feel like they had, they, it's interesting. It'd be an interesting question to find out. It's probably on the dang old Wikipedia, but if they had the chorus part first and they just added the lyrics, r rumor has it that him and Tyler and somebody else went to the movies and they saw Young Frankenstein. Let's walk this way. Yeah, walk yeah. this way. Yeah. Walk this way, right. Right. And uh, yeah, that's different than Sweet Emotion. But I, my qu first, first Sweet Emotion, I feel like they had maybe that chorus first and then they, it was just whatever in the verses. Because he's just kind of shucking and jiving in the verses of Sweet Emotion. I think it's all about that. And then that riff, I mean, that's a heavy metal riff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Walk This Way. Same record, right? Yeah. Same record. So he, they go to the movies, <laughs> and, like, it's Igol, right? Whatever the guy's name was, his name, Marty Feldman. Yeah, yeah. that's the actor, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, guy, guy, I love yeah. that guy so yeah. much. Yeah. He's a comedic actor, always clowning, right? Right. And say, walk this way. And he's dragging his foot. You know, he's carrying the luggage. You know what I mean? And so everyone's mocking him. And that's just, you know, I love it so much. That's that old slapstick type, you know. And uh, I bet Tyler just loves that kind of stuff. So I feel like walk this way was born. He gets in the cab. He writes the lyrics like on a napkin or something. <laughs> and then leaves the lyrics in the cab. Right, I heard that story, yes. So, he had, <laughs> so, so who knows, because he couldn't remember probably half of what he wrote. Right. So he had to just recreate that memory of fresh out of the movie. The, oh, man. You know, and he's probably more or less borrowing from the movie about that than he is you know, just shucking and jiving in between. Because that walk this way is that too, you know? Yeah. Hey, what's yeah. he talking? What is walk this way about? It doesn't make any sense. What's <laughs> I, he really talking about in the lyrics, you know, in the verses, right? It's almost like a demented nursery rhyme, you know? It's Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's well, like, he's rapping. He's rapping. Yeah, he's rapping. And it's it's like a sleazy nursery rhyme or something. The way it the way it uh, rhymes and yeah, it's like a precursor to what became rap music. Yeah. You were talking about um, you were talking about sweet emotion and uh, I I've interviewed all the guys in Aerosmith except for Brad Whitford and uh, Tom Hamilton and Joe Perry. I've interviewed twice, but Hamilton. Because he's got the bass line that starts uh, Sweet Emotion, I asked him about that specifically. And he said that uh, he was, you know, they all lived in an apartment together when they first started off. They were dirt poor, eating, you know, brown rice, uh, going down to the corner store. And as Tom Hamilton put it in, in my interview, they would liberate some hamburger meat from the store. <laughs> That's what they called shoplifting back then. And... Uh, 
And he said they would be, you know, living in this apartment together, just basically in squalor. And one day he was messing around with his bass, and he he said, uh, "I was in, uh, let's just say, I was in a a certain state of mind." So you you put two and two together, knowing Aerosmith, and figure that out. But so he's in the right frame of mind, uh, playing around on his bass, comes up with that intro, and apparently. Sweet Emotion was one of these things where Jack Douglas was producing that album, Toys in the Attic, and they were lacking a song. And Jack Douglas says, does anybody have anything? We need to fill up this record. And Tom Hamilton said, well, I've got this bass intro. And the other guys kind of fell in line. Now, whether or not Tyler had those lyrics sort of in the bag, ready to go anyway, or whether he tailored them to the bass line, I don't know. But that song almost didn't even make the album. It made the album out of necessity. And, you know, it's it's uh, one of their classic songs and maybe one of the most immortal bass lines in all of rock and roll. It's one of my favorites. That's a great, it's a great warm-up, that riff. Uh, it's kind of like the story you just told uh, mirrors uh, Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah, happy action. Slash is warming up on that gaddy beetle beetle bit. It's just a finger exercise. Right, right. It's just a half. And, and 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 I think uh, the other guys just sat down and started jamming along with it. You know, found the chords. You yeah. Know, moved a couple of roots around, and the song was born. Yeah. Um, you mentioned toys in the attic and rocks, and obviously those are the probably the you know, greatest, most revered Aerosmith albums out of a catalog that's full of uh, highly revered albums. Uh, what album would you go to uh, if you couldn't pick one of those two? What would be your next in line go-to Aerosmith album? Gems. Gems. <laughs> hey, good answer. That it has, uh, you know, uh, here you go, Live Bootlegs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's gems, rats in the cellar, licking a promise, chip away the stone. No surprise, Mamakin, Adam's apple. Oh my God, Adam's apple. Uh, nobody's fault. Holy crap. Uh, round and round. Oh my God, that's so metal. That could be Black Sabbath. Uh, Critical Mass, Lord of the Thighs, Jailbait, yeah, and yeah. Train Kept Rolling. So gems. Yeah, but half of those Holy songs are on yeah. either Toys in the Attic or Rocks. So, you know, because well, okay, so cheating. But I but I'll give I'll give Aerosmith this. When I saw Gems, I was like, wow, this might be the best compilation. Cause you get greatest hits records from bands all the time, and you're you're always like, eh, you're kind of disappointed because they throw in the radio songs or they throw in the overplayed something or other, and they don't really throw in like some of the deep cuts. And I think gems as a collection of air as an Aerosmith starter kit, that's an excellent choice. Cause it does have Adam's apple and chip away the stone and stuff like that on it, which is awesome. You would expect. Well, yeah. It's, it's basically a best of rocks and toys, but it's, but it's, it's got jail bait. It's got no surprise. Yeah. Let's talk about Get Your Wings. That's a great record. I, that would have been my answer to the question I just asked you, because to me, that is a great record that often gets overshadowed by Toys in the Attic and Rocks. But uh, can you tell them reaching over? I have my discography right here. I've got like it's a it's two feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great album. And um, 
I my copy that I have, I have the vinyl version of it, and a and a guy that I used to work with when I worked in a sheet metal shop gave it to me. He was an older guy. He was kind of the foreman on the crew that I worked on. How Judas Priest of you that you how black country of you that you worked in a sheet metal shop. Yeah, right. <laughs> how 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 Birmingham of you? How how Tony Iommi of you? You didn't cut your fingertips off, did you? No, but my oh, jeans were always shredded because I would always be folding the metal on my, you know, using my legs and my thighs to fold the metal and it was just splicing it all to pieces. But uh but this guy Steve Grimmett, I'll never forget his name. Um he was a great uh, musical uh, resource or influence on me because he was a few years older than me. He could tell I was starting to get into stuff, and then he'd be like, oh, if you like that, you need to check out this. Now, hold on a second. You worked at the—this is awesome. You worked at a sheet metal shop with the singer from Grim Reaper? <laughs> you realize that's oh, no, the same no. guy's okay. name, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I got I got the sheet metal guy's name wrong. His last name was Grimsley. Oh, Steve damn Grimsley. It. But oh, but that was such, that was a better story. Yeah, I worked with damn, the guy from Grim Reaper. Stayed with it, dude. I should have, man. Steve Grimsley. It's oh, not okay. as exciting okay. now. Make it sure. But okay. <laughs> that was that was a great story. See I see you in hell, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just rolled with that. No, but, it was awesome. Keep, keep yeah, going about the Grimsley. So anyway, Grimsley gives me uh, his vinyl copy of uh, Get Your Wings. And Grimsley was one of these guys that kind of lived out in the country. So he had a bunch of animals. He was really into uh, reptiles and animals and had a bunch of dogs and all this. So he brings me a copy of Get Your Wings. And it literally has bird poop all over over the cover because it was underneath one of his pet parrots or something and the bird dumped all over the album cover so steve went and bought a backup version and since he knew i was getting into aerosmith he's like here you can have the one that the bird pooped all over <laughs> yeah you can have these uh you know the the uh, nuclear the ground zero of the next bird flu on your turntable <laughs> Well, I brought it home and I listened to it. The record plays fine. The cover just looks disgusting. And uh, I was like, you know, it was an eye opener because that record is so good. I mean, it's got Lord of the Thighs, SOS. Uh, uh, I like Woman of the World. Woman of the World, Spaced. I like Spaced. And uh, of course, Train Kepa Rollin is on there. And uh, Wither. Seasons of Wither, that's an awesome song. Yeah, see what I mean? We just, we, I mean, that's a great, solid album all the way through. And uh, sadly, you know, if Aerosmith came along today, they probably would have been, you know, dropped after that record because it didn't sell and that was the end. But, uh, you know, fortunately, they came along in the 70s when, when labels developed bands and uh, that was their, that was their second album. And it's a, it's a, it's a great one, you know, hard to argue with that one. And then, so let's move ahead to some of their other albums toward the end of the career when the wheels were falling off. Uh, Draw the Line and Night in the Ruts. You know, the, the band was a mess. Um, they don't look back fondly on those records, uh, but I think a lot of fans find a lot to like in those two records. What, what about you? Um, I think that uh, I want to talk about Night in the Ruts real quick. I think that uh, that's an important record. For me, my younger brother brought that home on vinyl 
of course. Yeah. There wasn't even cassettes yet. Yeah, that's how you brought home albums in those yeah. days. It yeah. was an album. It, it, it was you had uh, they had this new thing called eight tracks. Yeah, <laughs> I got a few of those laying around. You know what I have is I have, uh, uh, I think it's an eight track player adapter that you can put a cassette inside of it. Uh, yeah, yeah I've seen weird. Me. Yeah, um, so. On Jim's, which is the greatest hits, so every, just so everybody knows, uh, I believe that the only song on that greatest hits album off of this record is track one, which is no surprise. And I think that it's important, this is kind of a generic part of the conversation now, that usually when you... It, it was quite normal for rock bands to put a very strong song, if not your first single, as track one. So uh, the rock and roll DJ who's going to put Needle in the Groove and not necessarily pull up some kind of MP3 or have an algorithm or a robot pull it up anyway, uh, you know, the needle's going to drop and it's easy to find track one, your lead off single, right? So no surprises, number one on here. Love that song. And no, uh, no surprises. The lyrics are about, they talk about how they were sort of like signed, yeah, how they were picked Davis. up by the label. Oh, Clive Davis going to make you a star. That's right. And uh, uh, the toys, we used to cover Chiquita. That's track two, Chiquita. And mm -hmm. that's a drop D riff. That's this super weird, dark, uh, darker kind of tone, boogie woogie kind of thing. It's very thump. Uh, and it's almost, I was going to save this for later, but I'll just say it now. You said you've never interviewed Brad Whitford. Well, Brad Whitford might be my favorite member of Aerosmith. Very underrated. Because he, I think that Perry gets all of the love and dude, I think he's the guy writing the super twisted, like think about that riff and combination from yeah. rocks. Yeah. Oh, crap. What the hell is that? What planet is he from? The thing is weird. I can barely, it's not, it's not very even singable, but I can hear it in my head like a disease, you know, like, like it, I can't get, get rid of it. Right. Uh, and then they did cover, uh, remember walking in the sand and Aerosmith always did a good cover, right. uh, just to finish it out. Cheesecake, three mile smile, reefer headed woman, uh, bone to Bone, Coney Island, Whitefish Boys, what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a sexual reference, I believe. Uh, think About It. You know who did think, think About It is a band from Bay Area called the Sea Hags. Oh, they wow. I think they covered Think About It. Wow. Yeah, wow. on their debut record. I need a fact check for that. But yeah, and then Mia is num uh, track number nine. And Night in the Ruts, they weren't getting along. It's, they, they don't favor the record. I even like the cover. It's black and white. They're like mining for go coal or gold or something. Super dark. Uh, 1979 is yeah. the time frame. You know who Mia is named after? The song? Yeah. Who's the song about? It's named after one of Steven Tyler's daughters. Ah, okay. He had a daughter way before Liv Tyler. And right. Named, yeah. And uh, that, that's his tribute to her. 
I'm glad you brought up No Surprise because that song rocks. And one of my favorite Holy lines. Crap. One of my favorite lines, and Aerosmith has so many good lines. I mean, when Tyler was on with the lyrics, he was on, man. But one of my favorite lines is in No Surprise, and it's the line where he says, we all shot the shit in the bar with Johnny O'Toole and his scar. <laughs> Who comes up with that, dude? That's awesome. Tyler. That is yeah, awesome. Best. Johnny best. O'Toole well, you know, and his scar. Yeah, Rob, Rob, <laughs> Rob Halford... Uh, you know, uh, toted a, a thesaurus around. And I just think Tyler has this gift of verbiage and wordage. And, you know, the dude probably did have a scar and he made it work. Yeah. Look at one guy going, this guy's going to make us a star just the way that we are. And this guy has a scar. So yeah. I'm going to use all that. Johnny, so, O'Toole, Johnny O'Toole is a real guy in their backstory. So he didn't just, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. He's like, okay, we got this guy, Johnny O'Toole, who's in our circle and he does have a scar. And I'm telling the story of the night we got signed and these people were all here. So they're all going to be in the song. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny O'Toole sounds like, uh, like the name of a drink that, that they said a bartender in Boston would have came up with. <laughs> and it's that. They should. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are you having? I'll have a Johnny O'Toole on the rocks with a scar. Yeah. <laughs> right. That could be a shot of blood, like, you know, the red yeah. sauce. Yeah. I'm with a scar. Yeah. yeah. Some blood, yeah, but blood in it. Those last couple albums when the, when the wheels were falling off, I think were really good. Uh, draw the line, the song, the title track, draw the line. You talk about what the heck was he saying? That breakdown in the middle of that song when Tyler starts yelping like a chimpanzee, I still have no idea what he's saying. And I've listened to that song a million times. And I don't need to know. It's awesome just the way it is. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's jibber-jabber, but the, it is lyrics. It has been transcribed, and I've seen it, and I've sung it. Uh, you know who else has sung it? People are going to be surprised. And here we go with the Twisted Fucking Sister again. Twisted Sister used to cover Draw the Line. Really, T. Snyder would do that. Yippee, yippee, yippee. He would do all of that shit <laughs> and nail it. I've wow. heard it with my own ears, not well, if, live, but I've heard a recording of it. Yeah, I mean that's the kind of thing. If you're going to take a stab at it, you better do your homework and get it right. You know. Well, and that it's a dude. That is a vocal styling that if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how to do that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you, it, it make sure that you have had fun, even in your somewhat adult life. I use the term adult loosely, that you have practiced making cartoon noises like, hello, boys and girls, it's Mickey Mouse. You know, you got to know how to do some of that or you're yeah. not going to be able to sing any Steven fucking Tyler. <laughs> OK, so um, I wanted to say I've got this. I'm cheating a little bit. I've got I've got the liner notes here in my hand and uh Special guitar work on Mia and No Surprise is Mr. Richie Supa, who wrote Lightning Strikes and Chip Away at the Stone. Yeah. He's the sole credit for those on those songs, which were later. They were a few years later. So yeah. this was in 79. They must have been hanging out with old Richie Supa quite a bit. Yeah, I think Richie was in their circle for a number of years, even before that. I think he was just... Uh you know, in the, in the Aerosmith gang off on the sidelines, but his name, uh, comes up quite often in their backstory. 
But yeah, you mentioned Lightning Strikes. Let's talk about Rock in a Hard Place. Uh, that's the album where um, most people say, and rightfully so, that Joe Perry and Brad Whitford were out of the band at that time. But that's not entirely true. Do you know uh, that Brad Whitford actually plays on Lightning Strikes? I think it's the only track that he actually cut guitars for. That's right. Yeah, that's the only one. So that was his that was his final farewell and his last contribution before he split. But uh, what he, a may not, he, he may not even be credited. I don't know if he is or not, but, you know, because they were obviously at that point, the band had Jimmy Crespo and Rick Dufay on guitars and their picture on the album. So uh, this, this is two or three years after uh, Ruts. Yeah. Because there was some turmoil after Ruts, and then, you know, they needed to find, you know, Tyler was a mess, and they needed to find new players, and the whole band was just a, a train wreck at that point. But for a band that was a total train wreck and was bringing in two new guitar players to replace two guys that are basically irreplaceable, I thought uh, Rock in a Hard Place. It's one of those albums that didn't do very well when it first came out, but I think fans look back on it fondly as sort of an underdog album that that's better than it got credit for. And uh, I've interviewed Joey Kramer one time and I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, it was a, it was an album that I look back on and, and, and can recognize there was some good material, but it wasn't the band in its truest form for obvious reasons. Uh, but I think a lot of fans look back on it and go, yeah, I don't know what those guys are talking about. This is a pretty good record. Holy crap! I love this record. Now it's I, it's a little more raw than you would think. Uh, no, I, I guess the I mean it's the same production. It's still Jack Douglas. It's, Douglas. it's still Jack Douglas. Yeah, Steven Tyler gets a production credit on it as well. Yeah. Uh, according to, uh, according sorry, to, go ahead. Yeah, according to Joey Kramer, Jack Douglas was brought in to 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 mop up i think aerosmith might have tried to produce it on their own and it was going nowhere and it was you know the record was three years in the making and finally they said we got to get this done let's call our old friend jack because he's a pro and uh, let's get this thing buttoned up and i think that's why you see his name on the on the album he, he deserves to be credited as a producer but he it didn't start off with him in the in the studio right well there's it uh, there's a tony bongiovi on here Ah. Um, and there's a slew of engineers. Jesus, they probably, it says recorded at the power station in New York and at Criteria in Miami. That album had so many false starts, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know. Well, I, mean? I, I think that the timeline gives gives them a few years, you know, two and a half years minimum to just figure out what the hell they're doing. Because yeah. they probably toured a little bit on Night in the Ruts and then imploded. Yeah, possibly yeah. yeah so so real quick um you know e even on ruts there's and on all on all aerosmith records people don't think about this dude there's brass all over them saxophones oh, yeah. and trombones yeah. and there's a full it's like a full jazz band in the background yeah and yeah. that's part of their sound yeah exactly it's always been part of their sound and they also they also have a lot of piano, they kind of ragtime piano in a lot of their songs. But yeah, you're right. That brass is uh yeah, it's part of their sound. I thought, you know, I thought Rock in a Hard Place was a pretty good album. Lightning Strikes is just probably one of my favorite Aerosmith songs. Um, 
Jailbait, as you mentioned, is great. Uh, Joni's Butterfly is great. Bolivia Ragamuffin. Uh, it's a pretty solid album. There's a cover tune on there, Cry Me a River, that, yeah. again, with Tyler singing, oh, my God, dude. It just sounds it's a, great. It's a tearjerker. Yeah. It, like, literally, the title is gets you. And I, I love it. I think that when you just kind of, like, wind him up and let him go, I think that he could sing Mary Had a Little Lamb and it would be yeah. it would be solid. Yeah. So this Bolivian ragamuffin. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was really getting into some shit here. Uh I think that um Bitches Brew is not necessarily the the song you want to go to. I love that song. I you do? Like I, I, I think the jig is up. I think jailbait, lightning strikes, Crimea River. Yeah. I think those are the standouts to me, just just to give my two cents. Yeah. The only lyric they reprinted in this C D rendition is uh Prelude to Joni, which is interesting. Yeah, that's the same thing on my vinyl copy. Yeah. Um, but uh, this this record is dedicated to the spirit of Johnny O'Toole. There you go. And his scar. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'd say his scar. But, uh, yeah, I love it. It's it's classic. Dude, Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah. It, I love yeah, the they got, yeah, yeah. Stonehenge. On the I, always, I always like the photos of the band on the back. That photo of Tyler is one of my favorite. He's kind of like crouching on a bar stool. And, you know, of course, he's got the, the big lips and the scarf wrapped around his head. I think that's one of the coolest Steven Tyler photos ever. He just, well, he looks like he's sitting in the corner like someone gave him a timeout. <laughs> uh, uh, Hamilton's wearing a, 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 a cobalt blue... Uh, leather jacket that looks like something that Paul Abdul wore in her videos. Yeah, one of yeah the guys he's not he's not scoring any points with me on that. Well, Dufay's looking like he's wearing an ugly Christmas sweater, and that yeah, yeah, yeah Dufay's hurting, and uh, Crespo looks right, but he looks he looks like they took the shot. And he said, "Wait, I wasn't ready." That's what that looks like. Um, yeah, and. And, uh, you know, poor Joey Kramer, he looks like he's uh, modeling for a JCPenney catalog. <laughs> the, the cover, the cover is, uh, is, I think, brilliant because it's, it's Stonehenge. Yeah. The record's called Rock and a Hard Place, and they've got Stonehenge on. And, I, and when did Spinal Tap come out? I don't know, 80, 81, something I, like I that? I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, it's but about it's, the same time. It's prophetic. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what's the first Aerosmith concert you remember going to? Well, this is where I get nasty and say, I didn't see them when they were good. I mean, when I saw them, they were good, but I didn't see them when they were, you were saying in an earlier episode, they might have been a train wreck, but nobody cared. They were seeing Aerosmith in their, their prime years, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Whether they were doped up too much to put on a good show or not yeah. is arguable, right? Depends yeah. on uh, what your expectations are as a as a fan, as a, a spectator, as a passerby, as an owner of... Uh, if someone walked in and didn't know any of their songs, they might be, man, these guys are partying, you know, something. 
but but I I think that the the first time I saw God I don't I haven't seen them a bunch. Uh, you know I, they were one of the bands that could have should have been in the episode like in our episode called Bands We Missed. Um, but I did see Aerosmith in the early '90s. Remember the Megadeth Aerosmith tour? It was there all four dates of the Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> Megadeth only yeah. lasted like four dates on that bill before they were booted off. I think because Mustaine insulted Aerosmith from the stage or something like that. Oh man, I saw one of those shows in Houston. Is that the one you were at? I think we had this discussion. Did you see him in Houston? I, I did see him in Houston. Yeah, so we were at the same gig. Yeah, yeah it's pretty weird. Yeah. The first time I saw them was I, I had been waiting and waiting to see him because I, at this point I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I remember them coming to San Antonio when I was in high school. It was the Rock and a Hard Place tour and Rose Tattoo was the opening band, but I didn't get to go. I was still, my mm. parents still weren't letting me go to concerts at that point. So I'm dying to see Aerosmith because I'm a huge fan and they were, you know, in total disarray. Joe Perry's gone. Brad Whitford's gone. Well, they do this reunion tour. They called it the Back in the Saddle Tour. It was 1984, and it was it was kind of a warm-up tour to see if they could get along and, and, and then uh, record another album, which ultimately they did, and, of course, that album was done with Mirrors. But they did a warm-up tour before uh, recording and releasing Done with Mirrors, and I saw them on that tour, and this is back when you actually camped out for concert tickets. So I remember sleeping in the back of my buddy's Camaro at the in the parking lot at Windsor Park Mall in San Antonio. And I woke up the next morning and you ran to the door and the security guy unlocked the door at the mall and you went running into the store. And I'm thinking, dude, I'm the third guy in the door. I'm going to get killer seats to see Aerosmith. And I go running, I come skidding up to the counter, you know, and I plunk my money down and I'm all excited to get my ticket. And they, they show me the map of the arena and they're like, OK, everything down here is taken, but you can, you know, I'm up in mezzanine already. And I'm like, I'm the third guy in the door. How am I mezzanine? And they're like, well, tickets have been on sale at three other locations throughout town about two hours earlier before we before we opened up. <laughs> well, and there wasn't any rules against scalping at that point. Yeah, and I, you know, and of course, I, I was naive at that time. Of course, you know, the first twenty rows probably went to radio people and all this stuff. But I was really heartbroken because I thought I was the third guy in the door and I was going to get great seats. But I didn't know that there were other outlets in town that had been open for two hours. But I did see them on the Back in the Saddle tour just before the Done with Mirrors album. I remember Black and Blue was the opening band, and I was excited to finally see them. And they were, you know. They, they've 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 mentioned in books and articles and stuff that they were still kind of a mess, but uh, I didn't care. I was seeing Aerosmith; they were fine as far as I could tell. I was excited, so that was my first Aerosmith show. And I've seen them countless. Well, I shouldn't say countless. I've seen them numerous, numerous times since then. What uh, year was that? That was '84. So I also didn't see them when they were the Toxic Twins in the 70s and all that stuff. Yeah. But I saw them in 84. That That's not bad, you know. No, that's pretty good. That's You're doing better than I am. I, uh, you know, 
honestly, now that I think about that Megadeth Aerosmith show, I had a gig that night. And I want to say, I want to correct myself and say I was at the Dallas show, not the Houston show. Okay. And I had a gig that night at the basement in Dallas. And a buddy of mine, Floyd, who's no longer with us, uh, who's the, was the super cool guy in the Dallas scene. He, you know, he, one of the Pantera, one of Pantera's little buddies. But me and him got along real good. Anyway, he was at every show that I ever played in the '90s in Dallas. And anyway, so he had tickets because his roommate was a scalper or something. So he had, he may have even had passes or something. Anyway, he's like, well, when you're done with sound check. Let's go see Aerosmith and Megadeth. And I'm like, I'm, sure. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. So so I went and we, it was, you know, broad daylight and we're watching Megadeth. And I don't remember, here's my point. Sorry for the long story. I don't remember seeing Aerosmith. I know they were the headliner. Yeah. And I was 10 feet away from where Tyler would have been standing. But I do not remember even seeing. I know I attempted, but by the time I was ready to kind of start my warm-up and do do my thing for my own gig, I think that I had to split. Yeah. So I don't think I've ever seen Aerosmith. So the only real, true Aerosmith in the flesh, in the same room, if you will, was I was playing Boston Gardens yeah. opening for the cult. Yeah. And my dressing room door is open, and Tom Hamilton and Joey Kramer walk by. And so it's like I'm seeing, you know, 10,001. That's all I saw him for was for one second, and I was like, holy shit, I know who that was. It was like, name this tune, and you play one second. Damn. Okay, yeah. what's that song? You know, I knew it was them. Let's see, I'm in Boston, and those dudes look exactly like, holy shit. So I'm running out the door just so I can gawk at them as they walk down the hallway and just like stop and talk to one of the security guards or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't run, I didn't dare run up to them like a puppy dog and bite their ankle. You know, I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that segues nicely into my, uh, to my next story, uh, because I can't do an Aerosmith episode without talking about the time that I was fortunate enough to actually meet Steven Tyler and uh, I was gonna, I was gonna make sure. Don't worry, you weren't, you're not getting out of this episode without talking about all that because I've seen pictures. Yeah, that was a that was a trip, and so and I and I owe it all to uh, Yayo Sanchez, who uh, our listeners might know as Kiss Guy, who got on stage with the Foo Fighters, and that video made the rounds and went viral. Uh, Yayo is a local musician. Uh, I guess you could say almost a prodigy. And uh, he was pulled on stage at a Foo Fighters concert here in Austin, Texas, and played Monkey Wrench with Foo Fighters, played, a, played Dave's, Dave Grohl's guitar, and nailed the song, and the video went viral. So the rest of the world probably knows him as Kiss Guy. Anyway, we know him as Yayo, and he's a pretty well-connected dude here in the Austin area. And... Uh, so Aerosmith is coming to town. This is probably eight or nine years ago now. And uh, I know that Yayo is in a band or is at least jamming, doing some long distance project with 
Brad Whitford's son. So Yayo is friendly with Brad Whitford's teenage son. So I jokingly tell Yayo that I'm going to this Aerosmith gig, and he says, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. And I said, well, if you've got any pull, you know I'm a huge Aerosmith fan. If there's any way that you, you know, can pull some strings or whatever, uh, keep me in I'm gonna, mind. I'm going to go on a limb and say maybe he, maybe Brad Whitford's son. I wish I knew his name. I feel terrible that I don't know his name. Um, he was at a Broken Teeth gig when we played the Viper Room. And I wish I knew the guy's name, but I don't think he's a teenager anymore. Not, maybe not anymore, but, yeah. you know, we've known Yayo since he was a teenager. We watched him grow up. So I, I've known Yayo since he was like 10 years old, nine years old. Yeah. yeah. So backtrack seven or eight years or whatever. They're, yeah. they're, probably, they're probably teenagers, you know. Okay. So anyway, uh, I, I kind of half jokingly tell Yayo, if you've got any pull, I'm going to be there. It'd be great to, to meet Aerosmith because, you know, I'm a huge fan. But don't, you know, don't stress. And he's like, all right, dude, I'll see what I can do. So uh, we're at the gig, and he starts texting me, and he says, where are you? Where are you seated? And I said, I'm in section blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, I'm down on the floor. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start flashing you with my cell phone so you could tell where I am. And so I see this light blinking off the floor, and I'm like, okay, there he is. And I'm with my wife, Kim. And so I said, yeah, I see you. And he goes, okay, we're moving in your direction. Uh, I'm with, you know, Whitford, and uh, we're going to pick you up, and we're going to go back and say hello to Brad. And I'm like, oh, my God, awesome, nice. And so I brought along my vinyl copy of Rocks on the rare chance that this was going to happen. You're carrying that thing around inside the venue? Damn straight I am. I can't believe they let you in there with that thing. They did. Because, you and know, I, you could chuck that and put someone's eye out. They didn't bother me about anyway, it. I'm, I'm, I'm I, I said, you know, I told Kim, I said, you know what? I'd rather lug this album cover with me all night long than kick myself to the grave if I get a chance to meet these guys and I don't have this album in my hand. Understood. So I'm holding the album. They come by our seats. They escort us down to the back of the building. Cheap Trick is on stage playing, by the way. They were the opening act that night. So we're with the guy, you know, Whitford and Yayo, and they've got their laminates and their passes, and they just keep telling security, they're with us, they're with us, and nobody's bothering them. So we end up in Brad Whitford's dressing room, and there's Brad. And uh, Yayo introduces me, you know, I introduce myself, we shake hands, we're talking a little bit. And uh, I asked him if he'd mind signing my album. He's like, no, of course not. So he signs his name on my album. And we're sitting there talking. And Yayo is standing by the dressing room door. And I'm, I'm about halfway in the room. And I look over at Yayo. And he, his arms are flailing. And he's kind of jumping up and down. He's in a mild state of panic. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? He must, he must see somebody. He must, there must be another Aerosmith guy walking around. It can only mean one thing, Dave. Yeah. It can only mean one thing that there is some kind of rare dodo bird is walking nearby. It's a, a a unicorn. Yeah. A a black and white striped boa wearing (laughs) eyeliner gummed up. 
Yeah. Some kind of a, uh, yeah, unicorn. Yeah. Carry well, on, my friend. I'm getting the signal, you know, and so I grab, I grab my wife by the hand. The signal. <laughs> the signal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't very sly. It was, it was kind of like Who I said, a, a mild state of panic. Who cares? But, You're at a rock and roll concert, man. I grab my wife by the hand. We run out the door and there is Steven Tyler is about 15 paces down the hall. And I get out the door and I see him and I'm like, just, just instincts just took over. And I shouted, I said, Steven. And he stopped and he turned around and he looked at me and I'll never forget this. He said, well, look at you. He goes get over here, man. And I was like, oh my God, me and Kim start walking over towards me. He goes, Let's step inside where no one can bother us because he was at his dressing room door. So we step into his dressing room because he doesn't want to be bothered if another crowd starts. I'm, to I'm, I'm sorry. So back up. So just so I can relive the moment again, who introduced you to Steven? Introduced myself. <laughs> oh, you just walked up and jumped in his face. I just said, yeah, I said, yeah. I said, Steven. And it stopped him in his tracks. And he turned around and he looked at me and he goes, well, look at you. And he goes, come over here, man. Yeah, okay. Just like floating at this point, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So we yeah, get. I would have started crying like a, I don't know. <laughs> I, I would have just started weeping a little bit. Invites us into his, I won't say I wasn't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He invites us into his dressing room and we're hanging out with him. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's carpets and incense and tapestries and the whole nine yards. It looks like a gypsy caravan tent thing or whatever okay so so you were in janice joplin's dressing room <laughs> yeah carry on yeah you were in the opium den so basically yeah and so we're hanging out with him and we're talking and you know he's he's giving us hugs and i ask him if he'd sign the record and he says yeah and he goes man this was a great record and i was like yeah it sure was and so he he's i, I think i probably would have cocked off to him and said you don't have to tell me that you're on this fucking thing. You are this record. Oh my God. Yeah, I would I wouldn't have let him talk, I don't think. Well, he 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 was kind enough to sign it and uh, you know, he asked me my name uh and uh, so he could he could uh, actually actually he signed it first and then he says, "Who's this for?" And I said, "Me. My name's Dave." And he goes, "Dave." And he writes Dave on the album cover. And I think he did that so that I wouldn't take it and sell it on eBay the next day, which I would never dream of doing. But if you look at the signed album, it's got his signature and then off to the sides, like dot, 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 Dave. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even care, man. So we're hanging out with him. He couldn't have been nicer. We probably spent 20 minutes in his dressing room before he goes on stage. And it's just me, my wife, Tyler, and one of his handler guys. And we had him all to ourselves, and he couldn't have been cooler, dude. And I was just, you know how they say, don't meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed? I couldn't have been more happy with this random total chance encounter. But I wouldn't have even been in the bowels of the building if it wasn't for Yayo. So I got to give it to Yayo. But meeting Tyler was just me being total fanboy, and I don't regret it one bit because I got to spend about 20 minutes with the man in his dressing room. And he couldn't have been nicer. And then as he's saying goodbye, he's hugging us and everything. He turns around and he gives Kim a peck right on the lips. And I was like, you know what? I don't even care. It's Steven Tyler. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. You wouldn't care about that. He sounds very loving, 
Um, but what? he's also he's also and I don't you know I wasn't there I don't know but he's a little creepy. And I don't care about that. Just like you don't care about that. He's a little creepy. Yeah, well, you know, I don't I I don't I don't care in the least. I mean, he was a total gentleman. He was he was he was totally he was very gracious and as you yeah. said, loving. And you know, he's the kind of guy that you can't touch without spending fifteen hundred dollars at a meet and greet. And I had this time to him all by myself, didn't pay a cent, and he was just super, super cool. And yeah. I was thrilled. So we're leaving, going back to our seats. I've got my autographed album. Kim is texting her parents <laughs> to tell them what just went down. And we get back to our seats and all those people that were sitting around us, they see us coming back to our seats and they're like, dude, no way. Did you get the album signed? And I was like, yep, check it out. And they were like, oh my God. And I was like, you know, you ain't touching it. <laughs> you you could have left the venue right at that. You were uh, no way. I'm still. I still got to see Aerosmith, dude. Of course, of course. About to take the stage. So, anyway, yeah. that's my Aerosmith story. No, I love it. It's it's fantastic. You know, first up, there's a bunch of different places I want to take this. Um, main thing is is Yayo is kind of this magical creature as well around here. Yeah. Um. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, that's amazing that he got you all up in it. I'll, never, I'll yeah. never, ever, ever be able to thank him enough for it. I try and I try and I try and I know he appreciates me uh, thanking him. He's probably sick of hearing from me by now, but I just can't let it go, man. I mean, that was I got to meet my rock and roll hero one on one in his dressing room, totally private moment. 20 minutes or so he signed my rocks album it's now framed and hanging in my living room right next to brad whitford's signature let's not forget this all started with brad whitford it was a magical night dude and i'll never forget it i i you could tell i'm just excited talking about it all over again yeah um but we should talk a little bit about you know we should just to be fair we should talk about aerosmith uh, part two or whatever you want to call this. Yeah, let me, let me jump into a couple of things about, I, I mean, I, I feel bad that I just called one of my idols a, a creep, but, uh, he's just, he's, he's alien. You know what I mean? He's not, it's the magic. He's, yeah. He's not exactly human is yeah. my, um, uh, it's almost a compliment, right? Okay. So stay with me. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm not really worried about the year right now. Some some 90, 91. Uh, I've got pump in my hand. Um, yeah. there they made a uh, they made a movie like a documentary type of a you know day in a life of type of a movie called The Making of Pump. Yes, and there is um a scene in there where this this is partial to uh i i loved it i think i have it on vhs to tell you how old i am but anyway uh so the 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 crazy thing about it is that it shows them writing the songs there's like a camera on a tripod or it might be a roaming camera or something and it's real grainy footage probably yeah. bad lighting that it, they tried to remaster it or something but 
they're writing the riffs for these songs on here. And Tyler sing something, Tyler get on the drums and play the groove. And it's him and Joe. Yeah. Uh, and they're writing these, they're writing all the riffs and putting the songs together. Anyway, I thought that was really awesome to see, to see these, uh, at this point, these masters, these rock and roll songwriting masters put their grooves together. You know, he's singing dummy words, you know, and, uh, maybe he had some of the original hooks and the, but anyway, so, and he's, he's jumping around the room like a crazy person. And there is probably some uh, truth to my seeing him as a crazy person, probably from this video, from this, this documentary, The Making of Pump. There is a scene in there, not only with the, in the songwriting, he's so excited and like, he's, there's no audience. It's just him and Joe and a camera guy. Right. And it's just, he's going, he's like, an, he can't, he's like going, boing, boing, bouncing off the walls. So, there's another scene in this film where Tyler is in the studio with Bruce Fairbairn. Fairburn, am I saying that right? Fairbairn. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And yeah. uh, and who, who's no longer with us? Uh, I want to get his name right. Yeah, I was said it right. Fairbairn. Okay. It's fair with A I and Bairn B A I Fairbairn. Uh, He's in the studio and they're cutting guitars. It might be Brad or something. And Tyler's in there and the camera is outside like two walls of like, you know, here's a glass, right? And then there's a hallway that goes around back and, and there's another glass, you know. So it's like two, I think it's like two walls. So the cameraman's not even in the the control room. Yeah. Okay. Stay with me. It's worth it. And it shows Tyler kind of like, Throwing his hands up in the air, and you hear him. But the part that is going off, and Bruce is like, "Hey, man, you know we're we're trying to work in here, and you're kind of like slowing me up here. But you know, tell me one more time. Well, this thing, and he's like, Tyler's doing all this, and like you know, drawing pictures in the air, and just basically like almost yelling at the producer, but excitably." Yeah. Not like angrily, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, but freaking out a little bit. Come to find that that's just normal Steven Tyler talk. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, you know, just crazy. I got to <laughs> dance to talk. I got to move my hands all around the room just to tell, I would like milk in my tea, please. You know, yeah. Uh, um, basically, Bruce, the producer, is kicking him out of the studio. He's like, go. Nope, don't, I need you to go. I haven't done, I haven't done, you've been here yelling at me for 20 minutes. You need to leave. And he's, so he's, Tyler's like backing out. Like that's still going, yabba dabba do and And he's going, Bruce is like, nope, leave. You had to leave. Kind of like pissed off. Yeah, yeah. Kicking Tyler out of the studio. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind Tyler, of interesting. Tyler's wired. I mean, I, I I bet he's like that taking out the trash, you know. He probably That's you know my point. I mean? Yeah. He's probably shuffling down the driveway doing a spin on his way to the mailbox. But yeah, you know, um I just wanted to bring up the second half of their career. I mean, obviously I'm an Aerosmith fan for the for the first part of their career and all those classic albums in the 70s, but um I really like Permanent Vacation. I really like Pump. 
Uh, I started to lose them a little bit around Get a Grip and Nine Lives. And, you know, they started uh, bringing in a lot of outside writers and they started polishing their sound a little bit. And some of it works, some of it doesn't for me. Uh, it served them very well. Um, but, you know, I'm, anyone who knows me will tell you I'm a sucker for a good song, a good hook, uh, a melody. Um, I mean, I listen to, I like Bon Jovi, I like Poison, I like the Goo Goo Dolls. So even the, even the sappy radio rock that Aerosmith did in the 90s and later, uh, I find some value in it. You know, I'm okay with Jake. I'm okay Ar with Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Ar okay. Armaged Armageddon soundtrack. Yeah, the Diane Warren wrote that song. And I remember interviewing yeah. Joe Perry and I asked him about that because they were catching a lot of grief about it. And I said, what do you say to people that give you crap for, you know, uh, using a Diane Warren song? Or ha and he says, a good song is a good song. When somebody puts a song like that in your lap, you run with it, you know? And I was like, okay, that, I'm not going to argue with that, you know. Um, but, yeah, they get a lot of grief for their MTV uh, era, you know, and the albums that went with it. But they've all they've continued to be a great live uh, attraction. That time that I met them, like I said, was just six or eight years ago, and they were fantastic. Um, so one of the great live bands, one of the great American hard rock bands, so influential. I mean, they they've influenced every band you can imagine. I mean, people might not even realize this, but James Hetfield himself has said that when he was growing up as a kid, Rocks was his album. He wanted to be Aerosmith. And most people wouldn't associate Metallica with Aerosmith, but he worshipped. Oh, you know? oh, oh, no. I've uh, this was no one's going to remember this, but but me. So it's you know, it's it's kind of my story. But I was once on the phone with James Hetfield and they were going to do they were about to do a show. Hell, it may have been Day on the Green, you know, San, big San Francisco show. And this would have been about 84, right? Maybe early 85 tops, right? And yeah, probably 85. Uh, and he called him the Smith, going to play with the Smith. Like he was super excited. Yeah. You know, like he was tailgating already, ready to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, open for the Smith, you know, he was, he was super excited about it. So I knew, yeah, rocks and toys. Like we started this episode. Those are a Bible to me. Yeah. Those are the, the heaviest and sleaziest things I've ever heard to this day. Yeah, Bar none. It's pretty obvious that Aerosmith influenced bands like Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat and LA Guns and even Van Halen. But, uh, you know, they also influenced Metallica. I mean, Testament did a cover of uh, Nobody's Fault. So they even even influenced oh, yeah. the, some of the thrash bands even. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they're that great of a band. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone's covered Aerosmith. I've been covering them my whole life. Yeah. So, yeah. And, um, and before, we, before we wrap up the Aerosmith segment, I just wanted to also throw out there, as a, as a, as a major fan, I've read as many Aerosmith books as I can get my hands on. And anyone listening to this who's interested in reading uh, some good Aerosmith books, uh, Stephen Davis, the, the author who wrote the Led Zeppelin book, Hammer of the Gods, he wrote a book about Aerosmith called Walk This Way. And it's probably, of course, I'm partial to Aerosmith, but it's probably in my top five rock books that I've ever read. It's really well done. 
Uh, Joe Perry's book is really well done. And uh, Joey Kramer wrote a book called Hit Hard, and that is a really good book. You don't often hear much from the drummer in the band, but he has a lot to say. It's an easy read. It's a pretty, you know, I don't know how many pages it is, 300, 400 or something. It's a pretty pretty quick read, but it's very revealing, very insightful. He's He comes from an interesting background. He's always kind of looked up to Tyler in in many ways. And uh, Joey, Joe, you're talking Joey. Yeah. And when I interviewed him, uh, I asked him, could you tell at an early age that Tyler just had that it factor? And he was like, oh, my God, dude, (laughs) I've known it since we were kids in school. You know, I mean, he's he's just always been this maniacal, hyper center of attention suck the air out of the room, high energy kind of guy as far back as even Joey Kramer can remember. But his book is really, is really good. It talks about his struggles with addiction and his, his, uh, a pretty tough relationship that he had with his dad and it's called hit hard. So there's your uh, homework. I wanted to throw a little bit more out. This is some information from get a grip that I find super interesting. And I, I want our listeners to know about this stuff. We talked about Richie Supa being on the late 70s stuff and as well on 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 into different records in the in the uh, 80s. Well, here he is in the 90s. Um, he wrote uh, where was it? Uh, he's on he's on Get a Grip. I don't I don't I can't remember what song it was, but he he's on Richie Supa wrote some some stuff on uh, oh, he wrote Amazing Oh, there you go. Amazing. There you go. He wrote amazing. So it's amazing. Um, I wanted to also throw out there that Don Henley sings backup vocals on Amazing. Oh, I didn't. Don know Henley from the Eagles. Yes, wow. sir. So, you know, they just, they were like, go, go, go. It, it's just go, go, go. Now, this is kind of a cool thing, uh, kind of flexing here, uh, sucking some wind here. Um, I have had me and the toys guys have had the pleasure of writing. We didn't end up using, uh, the songs that we wrote with him, but a guy named Taylor Rhodes who wrote some songs with, uh, he wrote centerfold for Jay Giles yeah. and he wrote, uh, crying for Aerosmith wow. and me and the toys got to write a couple of songs. His name's Taylor Rhodes came to Austin uh, when I lived with uh, our buddy Jeff Tweedy, Taylor Rhodes came to my house and we worked. We flushed out a, a parts of a song over there in that old house in Cherry Creek out there off of Brody. Uh, and that would have been 92-ish or something. Wow. Now, yeah, yeah, we didn't use any, any of the material just because we, we t- did totally feel like we were, we were already there, right? We were already writing. We were already ripping off Aerosmith. Yeah, <laughs> well, of course you were. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't, you know what I mean? So we didn't really think that it would be uh, the, the way to go at the point. But it was, it was cool to, you know, on the record label's dime to meet the guy that wrote Crying and Centerfold. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sure. But yeah. Uh, re- really cool that, that uh, you know, they've got the fifth Beatle, um, you know, in Richie Supa, as well as that horn section all the time. And I mean, they're, there's a, they're an army. Yeah. And really glad that they, that they cleaned up, 
you know, in the nineties and, and that they had people out with them that would make sure they would go to meetings. And I think that they just became, uh, even more than a phenomenon, uh, when they cleaned up and, and their songs, they never cheated anything out of their fans. Even, even the Armageddon soundtrack. I mean, I think that they need, you know, needed when they need a song to take them where the label probably wants them to go just as much as, man, we need one more song that's going to sail on, you know, that's going to like go over the fence kind of thing. Um, yeah, that that's okay. And it's not anything that, I mean, I don't know, Richie Supa did it for them. Why can't someone else come in and tag team, right? Yeah, they've worked with Desmond Child and Marty Fredrickson. I mean, I've, I've, I'm going to, suck the air out of the room again i've written with desmond child too and that's it's just uh yeah it goes to show that there's those guys out there i i need richie supa's number you getting that out there in the in the the truck i I need richie supa's phone number please yeah i wanted i wanted to share one more story i have here on my notes that i that i overlooked um and that is uh when i talked to joe perry one time I was, I've always been amazed by this story where he was out of the band. He was a complete mess. Uh, he was trying to get the Joe Perry project off the ground, which we should mention the Joe Perry project. They did three albums that a lot of people consider to be really cool records. And, and they are, uh, they didn't sell very well, but, uh, but there, if you're a Joe Perry fan, you got to have them in your collection. But Joe is out of the band uh, he's at this grocery store at like 3 a.m. It's a 24-7 grocery store. He's telling me this story. I'm not making this up. Joe Joe is telling you this story. Yeah, Joe Perry's telling okay. me this story. All right. Love this. So, um, he te- so he's at this 24-7 grocery store. It's 3 in the morning, and some kid comes up to him and hands him the Aerosmith Greatest Hits album that we all know is the that the one with the bright red cover and half the Aerosmith logo is on the front, and then you turn it over and half of the logo is on the back. Right. I have that somewhere. It's not in my stack of uh, wares at the moment. It's, yeah. it's classic Greatest Hits album. It came yeah. out in 1980. So Joe is out of the band at this point, and this kid comes up to him and says, hey, you're Joe Perry. And he's like, yeah. And he goes, would you mind signing my album? And he hands him the greatest hits record. And Joe goes, what's this? And the kid goes, it's your album. It's the greatest hits record. He goes, I've never seen this before. I didn't have anything to do with this because while he was out of the band, the label and the rest of the band or whoever makes these decisions decided to release this. He was totally unaware of it until some kid comes up to him at three in the morning and wants it autographed. You know, that's the state of affairs in Aerosmith circa 1980, you know? Well, it's probably quite normal for the band to just sign the contract and not read the fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the rest of them might have not known it was... Well, uh, he, he would he would have been the these last. Guys, these, these guys I don't know are going to pay my rent for the next 10 years? So wheat. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> trust me, they're allowed to, to take your songs and bunch them in the corner and make a, make a comp record out of it. So. Yeah. One other one other quick thing, and, th- and then we'll move on. But um, we totally skipped over the collaboration with Run DMC, which sort of served as the catalyst for Aerosmith's second career. Um, that collaboration came out in 1986. Aerosmith was basically done, washed up, forgotten. 
And of course, that song was a huge hit for Run DMC, and it brought Aerosmith back into the spotlight. And that video was all over MTV. It was massive. But I read somewhere an interview with the guys in Run DMC, and they were talking about discovering that album. And they didn't know the band was called Aerosmith. They thought the band was called Toys in the Attic because they couldn't make out the Aerosmith logo because you know how, read the logo because it's all squiggly and everything. Oh, that's fucking hilarious. It's like it's it's like you and me, uh, people of a certain age trying to read black metal. Yeah, like a black metal band logo. Can't, can't yeah. read black metal logos, right? DMC guys are looking at the album. The only thing legible is Toys in the Attic. So they're like, hey, we got to collaborate with these guys, Toys in the Attic, because this song, Walk This Way, is awesome. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure Rick Rubin w had their phone number already and was uh, was already like, yeah, so you guys got to you guys should do uh, Walk This Way. You know, the Aerosmith song. What? Aerosmith? What's that? Yeah. Oh, we know a song called Walk This Way, but it's called Toys in the Attic. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there's also something I want to. You mentioned the Joe Perry project. Uh, I want to mention the Whitford Holmes. Yeah, Whitford St. Holmes. Yeah. 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 Uh, the Whitford. Thank you, Whitford St. Holmes. I actually have that record. Yeah. And uh, man, that's inspiring. It makes me want to dig that out and check it out. Yeah. So yeah, Aerosmith, one of the one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. You know, they 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 were. Uh, initially dismissed as sort of a Rolling Stones ripoff, and then they were compared to the New York Dolls because they were from the same area. But uh, they certainly carved out their own identity. Uh, that goes without saying. And what a storied career through uh, death-defying. And, you know, something else we failed to mention is they're still going to this day, and it's the original freaking band. That's yeah, they're, all, they're all still alive. Uh, there, You know, there was, a, there was a hot minute that uh, Joey Kramer wasn't allowed in the room, you know. They, security uh, wouldn't let him into rehearsals, and you've been replaced, and he got a lawyer, and blah, blah, blah. I don't know the skinny of that. That's a Jerry Springer episode. I don't really know... Uh, how to react or what went down? What drums for you? <laughs> well, what what happened? Uh, what do you know the story behind that? Uh, so I think the I think the guys in the band felt like he might have relapsed um, um, on some pain meds or something, and they and they they considered that to be a breach of contract because I guess they're all under some sort of contract with each other where they're supposed to stay on the straight and narrow and not touch drugs and booze and that sort of thing. And I think they saw this as an opportunity to sort of box him out. And it lasted, like you said, a hot minute or whatever. And then it all blew over and everything's fine. But uh, yeah, I do remember hearing that and everyone felt like Kramer kind of got the shaft because none of those guys have been saints, obviously. And uh, I mean, even Tyler, you know, they they claim to, you know, most people consider the second wave of their career to be sober and straight and narrow and all this stuff. But uh, Tyler's relapsed on prescription stuff. He's not doing street drugs anymore. But, you know, there was an episode where he fell off the stage at Sturgis or something and broke a leg and they had to cancel some gigs. And the band was furious with him, you know, Um so you yeah, know. They even, I think they even threatened to replace him. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. Remember them saying that in the like publicly, somehow, somewhere, and I was like, "Now hold on a second. Yeah, how can I, you do that? Yeah, yeah. 
Mm. I remember that too, because some of the names being thrown around, I think the, uh, Josh Todd from Buck Cherry was one of the names in the running. And, uh, and I want to say Scott, uh, Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots was, was spoken to. And, you know, it was just a big to do about nothing. And, 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 you know, in the end, replacing Steven Tyler is just like, that's just crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't know how, how that could happen. It's it's almost uh, he's synonymous with the sound of the band. It's it's the same with how do you, you can't replace Lemmy? Oh, Motorhead's looking for a bass player and a singer. You see, it's it doesn't. I am. That doesn't that yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, that doesn't work. Well, let let's move on. That was great talking Aerosmith, one of my all time favorite bands, one of the greatest uh, rock and roll bands of all time. Highly influential. I don't know if you can throw a stone and not hit somebody that's. Uh, owes a certain amount of their rock and roll uh, juju to the greatness that is Aerosmith. So the messed, the messed up thing, Dave, is I know that we could go another hour just talking about yeah, it. <laughs> We're kind of like Steven Tyler. You get us wound up and we might just go and go and go. But uh, well, it's a, rock and roll is a natural high. And for those of you who don't have it in your life, you are dead. Please accept our condolences. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to our shot of rock and roll. Today's shot of rock and roll, Jason. I uh, I have to give some credit to, I wish I could come up with the name, but I can't at the moment. One of our listeners uh, is uh, interested in hearing some stories about Flotsam and Jetsam, thrash band out of Arizona, and of course, Jason Newstead was at one time their bass player before he was hired by Metallica. And then he went on to have a great career uh, replacing Cliff Burton in Metallica. And I know you have a little bit of history with Newstead. So for the sake of our listener who's been jonesing to hear something about Flotsam and Jetsam related, what can you share about your, uh, your time or your interactions with Jason Newstead? We'll look at Metal Dave with the keys to the cookie jar. Uh, that's nice of you to uh, to do that for the listener. I think that it's important to, that I want to say now that people who are totally digging the show, we love you so much. Um, we are looking at your comments. We are totally fine and open to you guys. Uh, chiming in, of course, and and having suggestions for uh, of things for us to yak about. Uh, yeah. We are rock and roll fans before we are anything else. And uh, if you want to remind us of what those anything else's are, you're you're free to do that too. Uh, but yeah, uh, show ideas, topics, things you shout outs, whatever. We're open to any of that stuff now. The only relation I have with Flotsam and Jetsam is honestly uh, Jason Newstead. Yeah. So it's more about him than it is Flotsam. But it was probably about 1986. Yeah, it was early 86, maybe late 85. Uh, the first Flotsam record had come out, Doomsday for the Deceiver, and it was on Metal Blade. 
and or it, it I mean it was brand new I think and I had received a letter I can't remember if I wrote to Flotsam and Jetsam saying wow I love this record I just can't because I used to do that every once in a while I'm a fan yeah and I didn't know by name any any persons, you know, person in the band, Flotsam and Jetsam. I knew where they were from. I knew they were on Metal Blade. And I knew I liked the singer, Eric A.K., right? So I uh, received a letter either way. I'm trying to, you know, scratch my brain for the get the memory juices going. Uh, I received a letter from Flotsam and Jetsam. It was handwritten by Jason Newstead. And this was a package. It had a cassette because there was no CDs. This is 80s, mid-80s. And uh, it had a cassette of Doomsday. It had a handwritten letter on Flotsam um, stationery, which I thought was pretty cool that I don't have anymore. And it had a, uh, a glossy eight by 10 of the band, band glossy, right? Yeah. Which I do still have. I do still have that. Uh, it's, it's close by actually. But anyway, um, the letter was a letter to me or to watchtower, actually the band that I was fronting. Right. And it was, he was, he was just bubbly and like, I'm such a super fan, blah, 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 blah. we love Watchtower. I, you know, it might have been I. He, he was a big Watchtower fan, Jason Newstead. Yeah. And uh, he, I don't remember if he gave his phone number. He may have. Yeah. And he was still in Phoenix, of course. Uh, but I remember writing him back going, oh, I love the, you know, thanks for the cassette and the da 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 And, you know, I don't know how he got the Watchtower album, uh, but someone turned, it was probably tape trading. Yeah. I'm sure that was it. Yeah. Um, there was still a Cliff Burton walking the earth at the time this sort of like, back and forth between me and Newstead uh, was happening. Uh, we were fans of each other's band. Um, unfortunately, I never got to see Flotsam and Jetsam. Oh, yeah, I saw them live one time, original lineup with Jason Newstead, and this would have been after Cliff's death. Uh, I was spending a little bit of time in Los Angeles and in San Francisco in late 86, uh, Watchtower had played some shows in San Francisco. Uh, I rode with Gene Hoagland back to LA. Uh, I'm on the phone uh, with members of Metallica securing addresses and phone numbers and, and information. So uh, I because I, I got Doug Keezer, bass player for Watchtower, a Metallica audition. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and sort of like fast forwarding just a little bit. Uh, while I was there, uh, Flotsam and Jetsam is opening for Megadeth, the very first band at the country club in Reseda, which is an infam infamous venue. 
and uh, I went to other shows out there later on, but this was this was late '86, and I I'm at the, I'm at the gig, uh, and uh, I I bump into Jason, and he's running around because they're about to go on. I think the first man was Dark Carnival. I think I have the flyer for that show. Anyway, uh, I ran into Jason, and I I like Jason dude, it's Jason, what's up? And he's like, oh, man, what a trip. Cool, cool, cool. And so we had a quick, like, 30-second, like, oh, my God, it's you in the flesh kind of thing, right? Yeah. And he and I'm like, uh, I'm like, did you know that I got Doug a, uh, an audition with, with Metallica? He's like, of course I know that. And I'll tell you this before I have to go because I'm about to go on. As you know, Doug is in the top five. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, and I got that right as he's like, dude, I got to go. And I'm yeah. like, of course, of course you have to go. But that meant that he knew that because he was in the top five as well. So Jason and Doug, both in the top five. Um, and then I saw Flotsam just completely destroy. And I saw Megadeth completely destroy. And I'm not sure what Megadeth album that would have been that they were supporting in late 86. What, al what Megadeth album is that? Isn't that Peace Cells? Mm, it might be Peace Cells, like on the tail end of Peace Cells. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was amazing. And I remember going in the dressing room for a minute after they played, and, and there was like, I don't know, somebody from Rat was back there. And uh, I think Ron Keel was back there. You know, <laughs> any, anyway, uh, that's my only flotsam real flotsam story i had i i kept in touch with jason uh, after he got the metallica gig and um you know saw him every once in a while throughout the years and and i i went to his house in in walnut creek and i think is what they call that part of uh it's it's in the god what's it called it's in the valley uh san francisco area can't remember, can't think of it right now. It doesn't matter. And uh, we were collaborating on some music. He he would do that with people sometimes and have people come in and collaborate with him. And nothing ever really became of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, and that was that was years later. That was ten years after uh, right. that I that I got to go to his his house out there. But that's it. That's my thoughts. Uh, that's as close to Flotsam as I got. I got to see the original lineup in California one time supporting Megadeth. And uh, that was right when he was about to have to leave his band. Yeah. Know? And, you know, you got to hear him tell you that uh, your bass player was in the top five running to join Metallica. <laughs> How else would I have yeah. even known that intel, right? So... Here's the so nugget. I got to, I got to call Doug that night and give him the news that he wouldn't have even known about. Right. I mean, that came from the horse's mouth. Awesome. Well, there you go. A uh, little bit of Flotsam and Jetsam, a little bit of Jason Newstead. And as Jason McMaster said at the top of that segment, you guys uh, listening out there, guys and gals, continue to shoot us your comments, suggestions, questions. We, we take it all in. We enjoy hearing from you. And uh, we'll uh, try to throw in a little bit of, you know, your suggestions here and there whenever we can. 
Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode of the wait, Talk. Wait, wait, like yeah. and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like yeah, and subscribe. I was going to do that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just jumping in here. I want to say it sometimes. Like and subscribe, everybody. Okay, go, Dave. There you go. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, and of course on YouTube and wherever you can. Hit subscribe, hit like, leave comments, etc. We love hearing from you. Until next time, Metal Dave Glessner here and Jason McMaster signing off for another episode of the Talk Louder podcast.